0: Session
1: with Dr. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Halaqi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310 Zero five five five. Before I get into the books, I wanted to thank my guest on Monday night's show, Dean Haycock. Join me. He's the author of Tyrannical Minds, which was a book of the week a few weeks ago, and I was very happy to have him on the show Monday night via telephone. He's in the New York area, so Also appreciated him staying up late by the time we ended. It was close to midnight his time, um, but enjoyed that discussion with him. And for those of you who missed it, that show will be uploaded um, with today's show later tonight. So you can check that out. But again, a big thank you to him. And if you haven't read that book, uh, highly recommended Tyrannical Minds by Dean Haycock. And now getting into the books uh, for now. Uh, I'll get into the summary for the book from last week, but the book for this week is "Disarming the Narcissist: Surviving and Thriving with the Self Absorbed" by Wendy T. Bahari. Disarming the narcissist. So, um, a few weeks ago, did a book on how to, what to do when a loved one is depressed. This one is in a different kind of realm, but it's also with dealing with others, but dealing with uh, a narcissist. And so look forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. But the book of the week from the past week that I'll talk about today is Neurologic, The Brain's Hidden Rationale Behind Our Irrational Behavior by Dr. Eliezer Sternberg. And this was a very fascinating book. Um, I've read a lot of books that I've talked about on the show related to the unconscious and things that we are not aware of. Um, And this book had a lot on that, about the unconscious, but also um, a lot about neuroscience. Many of the books I've read have talked about that. But this book coupled those together and talked a lot about the neuroscience of the unconscious um, and also trying to understand sometimes what can seem like irrational behavior or sometimes when we see certain disorders or um, whether they're psychological disorders or after an accident, someone experiences something because of damage to their brain. And when we try to make sense of it, it can seem irrational, as the title implies. But then when you try to understand it with the brain's understanding or what the brain might be doing, it can make a lot of sense. So that even that title, neurologic, is in essence saying that there seems to be this need, our unconscious, helps us create a narrative or a complete story from whatever is going on in our lives, try to give us a sense of self, a sense of continuity to make things make sense, and sometimes when it's dealing with incomplete information or if something is not quite right in the brain, it'll still try to make a story that makes sense, even though to the outside it might look kind of crazy and we all do this so that's in a way that um, neurologic is this concept of uh, creating a story or having a sense of self and even when we look at a sense of self what is that it is quite interesting because we have a lot of sensations and perceptions thoughts feelings that in a way make up our self. but usually there's this feeling of me of selfness that we each have And even when we interact with each other we have that for the other people but ourselves we have this sense that i have an experience that is me that right now is my experience and it's not just about my perceptions and so it makes sense to have this in an evolutionary perspective because it makes me more likely to want to pass on my genes when there's this meanness i and i feel everything is connected to that it can Push me or motivate me or feel like everything has to do with me and I want to continue this meanness in some way. So there could even be evolutionary explanations. But throughout the book, he um, talks about different, uh, at times, physical or mental issues and how looking at the brain can give us some insight. And oftentimes, when things go wrong or something is not quite working, that actually helps us understand how it actually works or when things are functioning correctly for most of us, what's going on. So, for example, people who are blind very often will experience what's called Charles Bonnet syndrome, which is that they'll have hallucinations. They will see things. And it's quite common. I forgot the exact percentage, um, but individuals who are visually impaired will experience this. And so there are some various ways of looking at what might be going on here. But one of the things is it's almost like because there isn't anything going in, there is an input, the brain is creating something, is creating a story, is seeing something. Or also other sensory systems are linked to each other. There, uh, there is some overlap. So it could be that other things are being triggered, and that's creating these visions but it's very commonly observed that people who have visual impairments start having hallucinations, which can make them feel like they're going crazy. But it's not that they're going crazy, but that they're actually, in a sense, is a gap in what they're experiencing, and the brain is filling that in, which is what we're doing all the time. Even in our vision, when you are not visually impaired, you think you're seeing everything that's in front of you, but oftentimes you're not. The brain is filling in gaps that are not there to give a sense of continuity. Um, He also talked about mirror neurons, something that is quite well known or gets a lot of attention, which is, um, of course, when I'm moving, there's parts of my motor system in my brain that will light up. But if I see someone doing a movement, so Ghazala is here in front of me and I can see her making some movements, parts in my brain that correspond with those types of movements will also be triggered. And these are called mirror neurons. And there's been a lot of research looking into how they play a part in a variety of things, but also in empathy. So when we see someone get sad, we experience something within ourselves also. We experience uh, a slight feeling of sadness. And this is what we mean by saying we feel someone's pain and we think we're saying it just in a kind of metaphorical way, but really we are feeling their pain to some degree. Now, hopefully not to the same degree. If we see someone sad, we don't get as sad, but we feel something when we see someone get sad. And so research has actually found that people who are high on empathy, who are good at um, feeling people's pain and understanding it, they actually have more activity in their mirror neuron system so there's more activity and that makes sense so it's interesting when we see the research in the brain studying how the brain is activated matching what we kind of would expect but it makes sense if someone is good at picking up other people's feelings it would make sense that they would be better at having their mirror neurons detect what's going on. It's helping them detect what is going on. Um, and he even talks about research looking at pornography and how that uh, can be affected by the mirror neurons. So when we're watching people engage in a sexual act, it can create that feeling within ourself. The mirror neurons are firing more. And even they found that the more people were aroused by what they were watching, the more the mirror neuron system was activated. So, there is that connection there. And then, related to mirror neurons, he also talked about uh, yawning. And we have all experienced that yawning is contagious. If you see someone yawn, you're more likely to yawn also. And we see this uh, in humans. Um, and it makes sometimes to try to understand why. And mirror neurons might be in play, it might be one part of it. And so, they looked at people with autism. And interestingly enough, children with autism did not express the contagious yawning as much as other kids. So they did one study and they found that 43% of the children who did not have autism experienced contagious yawning, but only 11% of the autistic children did. So it does appear that there's something that could be going on, and people sometimes wonder if individuals with autism have issues in the mirror neuron system, which makes it harder for them to pick up Um, Other people's emotions or to connect in that way, which which is interesting. Uh, He also talks about things like near-death experiences and how we can see the brain playing a part in that. Um, When the brain doesn't get oxygen, it could respond in that way. Even fighter pilots sometimes have these visions that are similar to what people experience in a near-death experience. So there's some parallel there. Or alien abductions, how many people... We'll talk about alien inductions and uh, abductions, and it's actually more common than you'd expect. People who have either experienced it or know someone who has, um, and that how sleep paralysis might help explain what people experience, which is essentially when the brain thinks it's, um, it's awake but can't move, which is a very... Uh, very difficult or I could say distressing experience to have if you've ever had that experience before you're awake but you feel like you can't move your body and so you feel paralyzed and sometimes you feel like there's something controlling you or not letting you move and so many people have this experience and the brain fills in the story And sometimes it does so by saying it's an alien abduction that I was held down because often they'll feel a pressure on their chest and they also feel like they can't move. And so the brain will fill in the story. And interestingly enough, what we see is people from different cultures will express different things. So some of them, um, if you're from a culture that has uh, talks about aliens, like we see in the United States, you'll see alien abductions. He shared some story of some other town where there was this thought that this old woman would come and sit on your chest and bother you and do these things, and people would feel her coming, and it was a very real experience, but it was because the culture was filling in that gap. Uh, It reminds me of when I was at a psychiatric hospital doing an internship for a year, and there was a patient there, um, a young man, who was biting neighbors or biting people because he said he was a vampire. And around this time, the movie, the Twilight movies, were very popular. Where you'd see a lot in the media about uh, vampires and werewolves and what whatnot. And so it made sense that because vampires were so much in the culture and so much around, that when his brain was filling in the gaps, it did so somehow by incorporating this element of what was in the pop culture because he was exposed to that. So we see that even. The ways we make conclusions or the way our brain is going to try to fill in those gaps will be influenced by culture. And so, related to individuals who might be seeing things that are not quite there or hearing things that are not there, uh, there was a very interesting chapter related to um, schizophrenia and people who have auditory hallucinations, meaning they're hearing voices. And rarely is something as complex as auditory hallucination is going to be explained by one thing. but what was quite fascinating was that sometimes they found that individuals who had schizophrenia who were hearing voices, they actually were making the voice, in a, they call it a subvocal speech, um, whatever they were hearing in their head. So they would actually set up microphones by their um, uh, vocal cords, and they found that these individuals, would hear, we could pick up on the sound that they were saying, hearing something. And so what we call subvocal speech means you can't actually hear it. Really, it might be what we are doing in our inner voice sometimes, because even when we think something in our head and we're saying it to ourselves, oftentimes our vocal cords do respond, but in a way that doesn't make enough sound to be heard. And so what could be happening is that individuals with schizophrenia at times are hearing their own voice but because they're not aware that it's their own voice, they think it must be someone else. So what they have found is that individuals with schizophrenia have a hard time differentiating or even recognizing themselves and differentiating that with others. So they played voices of people, including their owns, but their own voice would be slightly distorted And most people who don't have schizophrenia could still recognize their voice if it's slightly distorted. But individuals with schizophrenia were not good at recognizing their own voice or determining that this is me. So what could be happening partially with individuals who have schizophrenia is that they're hearing a voice. They can't recognize it as their own. They can't connect it that this is me. And so the way the brain fills in this gap is to say it's someone else's voice in my head or the FBI has implanted a chip in my head and is talking to me. And what makes it even more creepy and why it can make them feel like it's someone who is spying on them or someone who is inside their head is because, of course, because it's their own voice, it does know stuff about them that someone else shouldn't know. So if someone came up to you and told you about your morning routine, you would think, okay, they must have a camera in my room or something is going on, right? But if you hear this voice in your head telling you, what happened this morning, and no one else was there. As far as you know, you think, okay, there's cameras, they've put a chip in my room, I'm being spied on, something is going on. So interestingly, as crazy as we can think an auditory hallucination is, when we look at what might be going on in the brain, we see that it's not that crazy. There is some, to use the title of the book, neurologic, some logic behind it. The brain is trying to make sense of, I hear this voice in my head. It doesn't i can't recognize it as my voice it's someone else's voice therefore maybe god is talking to me or the fbi has planted a chip in my head or something of that nature is going on is the most logical conclusion i can come to based on what i'm experiencing and that's essentially what the brain is doing Um, and then in, in the last chapter he talked about individuals who are dealing with dissociative identity disorder which is usually, uh, before it was called multiple personality disorder. There was a movie Split and other movies that have dealt with this um, mental disorder, which appears to be very real. Sometimes people doubt, is it actually real that people have this um, multiple personalities or fragmented identity, and that's why they've changed it to dissociative identity disorder. But it's it does seem very true, and even they see differences in their brains. And it seems likely that this is the brain's response to severe trauma and so almost always when we see individuals dealing with uh, dissociative identity disorder we find that they've experienced intense and prolonged trauma and really really bad trauma and this was the brain's way of trying to survive that it has this main personality which is usually who they think they are um, but that person is detached from the painful memories And then when stress might trigger them moving into these other, if you want to call them alter egos or other personalities, those ones have the experience or the memory of the trauma, but they don't always come out. And even when they looked at research, they found that the parts of the brain, the hippocampus that might be dealing with memory is not activated or the whole thing is not activated when these individuals were being different parts of their personality, which is quite fascinating that we neurologically can see in the brain what's going on when these individuals are switching between personalities, and that the brain is protecting itself by quarantining certain emotions and certain memories that might be too painful to experience um, and putting them away for most of the time. And so, as psychologists will often say, that it seems like the person has put When they suppress something, or if we talk about repression, some emotions or memories have, it's almost like they've put in a box so that they're not accessible, but they might still have some effect or impact on the person's life. And so here we're seeing with these brain scans that it does seem to be the fact that people who have dissociative identity disorder, they are not accessing all of their memories and all those painful memories and traumas in a way to protect themselves but they feel disconnected, which makes sense, but it might seem the safer way. And uh, he gets into how even actually hypnosis can help people with dissociative identity disorder in a way integrate these various aspects of themselves. So the book was quite fascinating. I I really enjoyed it. As I mentioned, I've looked at a lot of books that have talked about the unconscious and looking at neuroscience, but the way uh, Dr. Sternberg was able to bring them together and shared research I hadn't seen or read about uh and different ways of looking at it was quite fascinating and trying to understand what the brain is doing trying to make sense of things that our brain is trying to give us a complete story so sometimes when it's getting incomplete information or something is not quite working right in the brain it's going to try to fill in those gaps in ways that might look crazy to the outside but when we try to understand it we see that it's it makes sense there is some logic behind it. So I highly recommend uh, this book. I thought it was quite fascinating. That was Neurologic, The Brain's Hidden Rationale Behind Our Irrational Behavior by Eliza Sternberg. All right, reached our first commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty DeLocque. We will be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Uh, You know, I wanted to talk a bit more about this book. During the break, I actually got to talk to my dad. He was interested in some of the um, research that I shared in the book. And one thing, for example, that I mentioned to him that I didn't get a chance to mention on the air. So I mentioned that individuals with schizophrenia, they found that they have an issue with self-recognition. Recognizing themselves, hearing their own voice even and realizing it's theirs. When it's been slightly distorted. And so, um, related to that, seeing that there's an issue with recognizing themselves, they wanted to look at research related to being ticklish or being tickled. So, now you maybe have experienced that if you try to right now tickle yourself and you go to your stomach and use your fingers and try to tickle yourself, you don't really have much of a sensation. You won't respond much. But if someone else comes and starts to tickle you and they come to your stomach or your ribs and they play with their fingers a little bit you're going to uh, get tickled and you know you might even push them away you start laughing and giggling and so what they have found is that part of what's going on is that because you're not aware of where the fingers are going to go next or because you don't feel it as your own hand that's part of what makes it ticklish so if you do some hand movements to yourself and then someone else does those same ones you will feel tickled by the other person but you won't feel it yourself so when there's in a way a match between what you feel yourself doing and you see it as yourself and what you feel on your body you don't have much of a sensation but when there isn't that match that's when we have this feeling of being tickled so they tried uh, with individuals who have schizophrenia and it was quite remarkable that they found that when uh, individuals with schizophrenia tickled their own hand they experienced the same level of ticklishness or tickliness as when the experimenter tickled their hand. There was no difference between them. So they felt the same thing. They laughed just as much. So it shows us again that they do have this issue with recognizing themselves or there is some what we could call a malfunction in recognizing the self compared to what most people experience. And so when we see this or when we think about someone who's reporting auditory hallucinations or who's telling us the FBI is following them, And spying on them a lot of times our reaction is oh that person is crazy and even really when i i talk to most people we might say depression and anxiety thankfully the stigmas are becoming less but when we think of something like schizophrenia and people hearing voices or thinking they talk to god or they are jesus or these types of things we think oh that's that's crazy that's just a crazy person and when we see What the research is showing us is that there's something going on in their brain, and a lot of times these changes are so minor if we really look at it from a big picture compared to someone who's not experiencing these things. So we might say there's underactivity in this part of the brain, but it's very small amounts of things that we're measuring. Um, We see that it's not in their control, and really they're just suffering from some type of malfunction. It's just like if someone can't walk because something is going on in their brain that doesn't connect... Uh, to the the leg muscles. We wouldn't say they're crazy. We would say the poor person is suffering. It's a, something they're going through. So I would also experience this in uh, the psychiatric hospital. I mentioned being there for a year doing an internship. and It was really quite fascinating for me to have this experience um, because uh, I got to see individuals with severe mental illness And at first, it could seem like they're very different from someone who doesn't have them, and they are definitely suffering. But over time, you saw more of their humanity and their humanness, which is always the case with any group that we consider an other or any group that we try to um, think of as different from us. When you see them more, you see that they're not that different. And I also realized that these individuals, although they maybe at times seemed so different in how they were acting, what really was going on in their brain was so subtle as far as the difference between my brain that it's even hard for us to measure it. Maybe there's too much dopamine. Sometimes that's considered part of schizophrenia. But that amount is something that probably if we take from their whole brain doesn't even make the tip of my finger. It's that minor. And so it was one um, giving you some Gratefulness or gratitude that I'm so lucky when everything functions so well. We're so used to things working well in our bodies and our brains that we f- sometimes can forget how fragile and delicate it is. The line between being uh, what we consider um, stable and able to perceive things and someone who has hallucinations, hears things, sees things, or whatever it might be, we we realize it's a very thin line. And so you can be very grateful that things work as well as they do. Um, And also to recognize that these individuals who are suffering, and that's what actually I enjoyed in that part of the book about looking at different mental illnesses in some way, and it wasn't always the main argument, but it does make you realize that When we think of people as crazy or so different, it's something so minor that makes them different. And it's unfortunate and it's out of their control. Yes, someone with schizophrenia, we can say it's in their heads, but not something in their control that's in their head. Something is slightly off that's creating what we then observe in them. So that part to me was very interesting in the book, recognizing people who, for example, with autism, it's not that they don't want to connect. They just really can't. The parts of their brain... That is supposed to be able to connect and try to understand what i'm feeling just don't quite work and so i thought that was really interesting and and worth looking at um, this uh, type of concept that people who are suffering are not uh, exactly so different from you and i it's very subtle what could be going on um, but it is something that can be explained or understood he also talks in the book about things like habit and how when we're in our habit our unconscious mindset, we tend to not be aware of things that are going on. So maybe you've had this experience where you're driving somewhere and if something is on your mind for 20 minutes, you don't even realize that you've been driving and all of a sudden you become aware oh, how did I get from wherever I was to home? And you likely won't experience this on a route you've never been on before where you have to pay attention to directions because then you do need your conscious mind to be involved in this task of driving. But it usually will happen when you are using your unconscious or you're able to do it automatically. The path has become habit and you cannot think so much as far as consciously think while the unconscious does its work. And so this also um, illustrates another point in some of the books I've talked about recently related to the unconscious that because of the history of um psychoanalysis and so Freud was one of the first to really talk about the unconscious and the unconscious he described was all about these dark drives and negative things and desires and um, sexual impulses and it had a very dark image to it of the unconscious and so that is definitely stuck where people look at the unconscious and we think if something is unconscious it must be something dark and bad but really we recognize that the unconscious is what helps us survive that there's so much going on and there's so many reasons that the unconscious does what it does Um, but it's not something negative that we should think of as a bad thing we want to understand why does it make sense that a lot of things are happening in our brains and our minds outside of our conscious awareness and that it makes sense That we have those things so that book i thought that was another interesting aspect of this book again illustrating that we need the unconscious sometimes it can be helpful if we can unconsciously do something while we're also thinking about something else or doing something else because that allows us to be uh able to be more efficient in those kinds of ways as well so this book again i would highly recommend uh, neurologic helps you understand yourselves a little bit better why we do some of the things we do it also helps you understand people who are struggling or suffering in different ways and also illustrates this point that we're always trying to create a story our mind is trying to make sense of things and this is why when it comes to even political issues if i say why do you support this candidate you will come up with a reason that you like more than probably a reason that oftentimes is a truth that's something that i realize sometimes we're just instantly feel like okay this person is attractive even as a candidate Or they said this and I liked it. Or I agree with them on this issue. And we'll come up with reasons to justify that. We fill in the gaps of the story. But especially we don't just fill them up randomly. We fill them up in a way that we like. Something that feels good to us. That makes sense to us. So as much as you might think you are just always thinking rationally and consciously about everything. The influence of the unconscious and influence of things that are out of your awareness is much larger than you probably realize. And that's another aspect of the humility of trying to understand ourselves better is that there's so much we don't know even about ourselves. There's so much we don't know about why we like certain things or dislike certain things or like someone or dislike someone. We might think we know, but often we don't. Or often we might not be aware of why we're in a bad mood, something we were exposed to that we didn't even realize might be affecting us more than we realize. So it it takes that recognition of taking a step back of not knowing or recognizing we don't always know and being okay with that but always trying to understand yourself better and realizing there's so much going on underneath the surface that you usually are not consciously aware of all right we've reached our next commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 you're listening to in session with dr fatty deloc we will be right back back Uh, studio number 3104410555 so in discussing the book neurologic i mentioned the importance or uh, the role that mirror neurons can play in empathy and in uh, feeling someone else's pain and i think it's interesting when we look at the research on empathy it makes sense that we are in some level feeling the pain even you've probably experienced this and they'll do research that for example if you see uh, a hand being punctured by a needle, you're going to have a reaction yourself in your hand. You feel something. And that's why if we go to the movies and you see something about to happen, they're going to do something very gory or gruesome. Unfortunately, you'll feel that in some way yourself. So it does actually have an effect on us. And so there could be this feeling of being rational that sometimes people can be so attached to and think, Well, if I'm just seeing something, why why would I care? But it turns out no you do actually care something is going on in your brain that's corresponding to what you do see so it does remind us again that we are affected much more than we might realize by what we do see images even in the media or movies uh, we do have uh, that does have an effect on us but also going back to this idea of how empathy involves the mirror neuron but we have to also allow ourselves to feel it which also he talked about in the book that there is some level of feeling the pain and this I've seen so much, especially uh, in my office, both individually, but also in working with families that when people are not in touch with their own sadness, if they don't allow themselves to feel sad or they're not connected to those feelings, it becomes very difficult for them to connect to someone else's sad feelings. And so in that way, to be able to support them, to have that empathy um, for what they are going through. And even if we take a step further back, we see that many people don't, uh, can't tolerate those negative feelings in themselves. And this is when we start hearing this word irrational a lot when it comes to emotions. And so I hear that a lot. And this book itself was talking about the, the hidden rationale behind our irrational behavior, which I thought was quite interesting. And I at times take uh, issue with this word rational because we sometimes like to think there's some purely rational way of thinking about things and that emotion doesn't play any part, but we're very often very unaware of how much our emotions are even affecting this. So when I hear this a lot with emotions, it it does make me almost laugh because it seems so um, off to me. But someone will say, oh, someone is mad, they're being irrational. Okay, but if they're being happy, I doubt you would have that same reaction, Or especially when it comes to parents and their kids, they'll say, oh, he was so mad, he was acting irrationally. But when they're happy, I've never seen them complain or say, well, is this emotion rational or irrational? Because they like it. So here we see that it's less about this issue of rationality, irrationality, but a preference and a feeling. We don't like the feeling of sadness or anger. And so when we see it, we want to get rid of it somehow i i see my son or daughter getting upset or sad and because i don't like it i'm trying to get rid of it and one way i can do that is by completely dismissing it as valid as even being real or something good you shouldn't feel what you're feeling which is most often what people tell each other when they're feeling something negative again we don't say that when someone is happy when they have a feeling we see as pleasant or we like we rarely will say oh you're happy today that's irrational but if they're sad sometimes people will say It's irrational to be sad. Or something I hear so often is, why would this person be depressed? It doesn't make sense. What does this person have to be depressed about? Um, And this points to a lot of points uh, or facts that I look at when I understand people uh, in my office or just in a daily basis, but that, that we think we know what makes people happy, but usually we have those things wrong. So we think if someone has money and they're taken care of financially then what do they have to be depressed about and yes if you don't have those things it can make you depressed if you're struggling and dealing with the stress of making uh, monthly payments on your house or health insurance and those things of course that can add to stress which can definitely affect your mental health but it doesn't mean that if you have things if you are financially secure you don't experience depression or sadness or that you can't be sad and what I hear parents do at times is they almost take offense to their children being depressed or sad because they see it as if you're depressed, that means you're not getting enough of something or I'm doing something wrong or I'm not providing for you. So how dare you be depressed? How dare you say this? What am I not giving you? That's making you depressed. And we have to switch this understanding of if you have money and if you have things, you're going to be depressed, which with the understanding of what depression is, is or also what really does make us happy and also the fact that you're not supposed to always be happy as in smiling all the time you're not always going to be feeling good so if your child is feeling down I would hope that your first response isn't to invalidate it but first what you're gonna have to do is to get in touch with your own sadness and also with that get in touch with what judgments you have about feelings do you think sadness is weakness Do you think sadness is something bad and means you're ungrateful or even immoral or a bad person or lazy? As lots of people might think about these uh, depression or sadness. What are the judgments you have about that emotion and how comfortable are you feeling those feelings? I think people sometimes have it mixed up that they think that mental health means feeling good all the time, but a big part of mental health is being in touch with your feelings and also being able to tolerate the negative feelings. It's not that sadness is something that gets erased immediately. It's that something that you can get in touch with. So as a parent, it's so important. And even as a partner, especially in a romantic relationship to have the capability to feel your own sadness and be okay with it because until you're okay with your own sadness, you won't be okay with someone else's sadness. You won't allow them the space, to express their feelings, to feel what they're feeling. Until I can tolerate being sad myself, I can't tolerate your sadness because as we were just talking about, to really have empathy and to sit with someone else and their feelings, we have to actually feel it ourselves. And so if I hate the feeling of sadness when I see you feeling sad and it makes me feel that way, I'm going to try to make that source of my sadness, which is you being sad, go away make it disappear or numb that feeling or invalidate it or distract you or whatever I have to do because I can't tolerate it. And so this is even something as a therapist that takes practice. When your client is crying to let them cry, not just say, here's a tissue, you have to stop crying or it's okay, or "Everything is going to be all right. Give them that space to be sad. And so with parents, we have to be or with our kids as parents, we have to be aware that if we don't give them that space, we're taking something away from them. We're taking away from their experience. So we have to allow these mirror neurons to actually activate and that we see them sad, allow ourselves to feel sad too. I see that you're sad and that does make me sad. And then this is where it gets a little bit tricky because yes, you feel the other person's pain, but you can't feel it as much or more intensely than they do, which is also what some parents do. They find out their kid is sad and they lose their mind getting so worked up. Oh my God, you're sad. What's going on? My child. Oh And they go so crazy that the kid now has to take care of you. So you have to, in an appropriate expression of empathy or the best way that you can do it is you feel it to a degree, you show that you care, but you also show that you can handle it. And so this is where Winnicott's concept of the container can come into play as a parent that you can see the feeling, you understand it, but you can also hold it with them. You serve as a container while your child who can't deal with these big feelings um, is trying to calm down or deal with them. I just actually recently spoke to a friend of mine. I brought him up recently who he was saying his son, who's about a year and a half at times, will hit him if he's angry or upset. And we were just talking about what can be done or what he should think about that. And I wasn't so concerned because I'd seen the kid and also what he was describing wasn't too much. But really what was most important is for them to help him start to understand his feelings. And they would verbalize it to him even at his age. That can help over time. But then show them that he can handle them and it's going to be okay and that they can handle them. Unfortunately, when you don't respond in a way that shows your kids you can handle them, they are going to start to put their feelings away so to be a really caring person sometimes we think my job is to cheer people up if people are sad i have to make them happy and there is time for that and space for that people do need that at times so i'm not saying if someone is sad you should never cheer them up or there's no space to try to make people laugh and and enjoy themselves but it can be important for many people to realize that really when you're there for someone it doesn't mean you change their feeling very often being there with someone means that you are going to just be with them. It's like you're walking along a path with them, not you are taking them somewhere else. Sometimes they just don't want to be alone. They just want someone to walk by their side, not have someone change the experience or change where they are actually located. And I think this is very hard for parents and I can understand. You love your kids very much and you see them feeling sad and your knee-jerk reaction is to take that sadness away. And a lot of times that's what you do when it's an avoidable pain or it's something they uh, a discomfort that they shouldn't be feeling, you are taking that away. When they were a baby and they needed to be changed, you change them. When they needed to be fed, you fed them. You take away that pain. But as they get older, you start to see that at times allowing them to have their emotional experience is very valuable as well. And every pain does not have to just be erased or taken away. It's okay to let them feel that way. And so I can be a loving person and I care about someone, but I'm not just trying to take away their sad feelings. Cheering someone up is not always the best way to be there for someone. So as this book was talking about with the mirror neurons, we want to make sure we're engaging our own feelings when we connect to someone, that we allow ourselves to feel a little bit and connect with them and stay with them, not just trying to take away what they're experiencing. So uh, I'm interested to see even more the research being done on things like empathy and emotion recognition and others, which there is a lot being done to help us better understand what's going on in the brain when we are feeling someone else's pain and what we do experience and even what we do to try to handle those emotions within ourselves. So that was some more uh, based on the book Neurologic from, uh, by Eliza Sternberg. Um, which again I really enjoyed uh, one of the f- best books I think I read this year so I highly recommend it all right going into another commercial break studio number 310 we'll be right back welcome back studio number 310 let's go to a caller Radio Hamra you're on the air
2: hello Dr. hi
1: thanks for
0: calling
2: uh, thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, I have a question about my uh, about friendship uh, and Vietnamese group for my five years old son, and I want to give um, I want to give a brief story about him, and mm-hmm. after that, ask my question. Okay. Um, when he was uh, one and a half years old, we uh, we left Iran, uh, moved to another country, second country for six months, and after that, when he was two years old, we moved to USA. Um, after a couple of years a couple of months we sent him to um, child care he wasn't ready because he uh, didn't know about he didn't uh, know English hmm. so uh, and when we talked about uh, him to, with the child care they were uh, they were very good with him but he wasn't happy at that time so after one or two months we keep him in the house and let him watch animation to learn English and when he was around, three years old, we uh, uh, bring him back to another child care, mm-hmm. and uh, he was really like, the English, but that child care was something, like, m- more about disciplines, keep as much as children they can bring, so uh, they try to force them to uh, behave the way they want, and, uh, like, uh, keep him uh, keep them in the bed for two hours, or something like that, so um, he... We don't like to be there. I mean, sometimes when there we find him playing with the children and be happy, but most of the time he uh, wasn't one to go to childcare in the morning and uh, we have a problem with him. Uh, so we decided to uh, stop going to the childcare. We have a brief like for three months traveling to Iran and come back. We search for a uh, mm, childcare to be more plain. And we find uh, one, and we uh that one not force them to uh sleep when they don't want, and most of the things we love playing and something like this but and so when he was around four, we put him in his child care after just a mm, couple of uh days, he liked to go there and lost and uh, trying to go there, he had a problem to come back home, so we were really happy, and we are really happy. Uh, the thing is, uh, uh, we are going to put him in the trans, uh, transitional kindergarten because uh, he uh, his birthday after September, mm-hmm. and the second thing is we want to move from this city to another city in um, two years from now until two two years, and we hope this is the last one. Uh, so, and uh, one more thing, in this childcare, he has two or four very close friends. He's very happy with them all the time, talking with them. Um, and uh, there is something about the cost. Um, I want to give you the real number, you know, when, uh, to better understanding. Uh, I'm making 6000 per month, and I'm paying like 1200 So it's not very cheap for us. Mm. It's just something we can afford, but it's not very cheap, but we are happy because he is happy. And from the August, my question is, from that case because we we, are, we know we are going to move another city maybe in one year. Um, is it a good thing to try to keep him in the structure? Is it worse than it, or it's not a problem because he is just almost five? He cannot understand very good about the close friendship and put him in the uh, kindergarten, and after that move again and stop there for uh, a. As uh, long as we can, hope un- uh, until he uh, finish high school. Well, and my uh, second question. Well, okay, yeah, go ahead. We are going to. Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Ask the second
2: one too. Okay, and um, so my second question is: We going to do that? We going to uh, bring him out from again and put him in the um, kindergarten? Uh, what is the best way? Because he's you know, he's he has some friend. We don't want to shock him to say, okay, from tomorrow you are going to another school. This is okay, or is there the best better way.
1: Hmm. yeah there, I mean it's going to be tough and already what's difficult is that he has dealt with so much change and instability his whole life you know from moving to, from different countries and different even the schools now and so I, he might be sensitive to that in general that's something I w- wanted to ask you how does he deal with change in general
2: um, uh, because we we, uh, we are a big family so when we was in your Iran we, uh, he uh, at that time, he was very uh, young to understand about that. I want to talk about one and a half year uh, son. But after that, when we uh, was there for three months, that was lying. But we were, we were there for three months. He um, find very good. He has a very good experience on that. So sometimes he's talking about uh, his family, taking "Oh, I want to be there. I want to play with them." But overall, right now he's very happy. I want to, um, uh, right. We don't have any problem. Sometimes we uh, when we. In the past, we put him in the child care. He wants to be in the home more, but mm-hmm. right now, he wants to go into the child care, play with the friends, uh, and uh, go with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And when he comes back home, he's happy playing with us, can play with him himself. And right now, everything's good. My question is yes, we have a good position now. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, um, yeah, you know, disturb it.
1: Well, one thing I'll also mention, because you've said it a few times about him, um, you know, he's young, so he won't remember this, or he might understand this. And sometimes he won't understand something, or you're right, as far as memory goes, we don't think people can recall things before the age of, let's say, three, like actually describe the memory. Now, it doesn't mean there might not be memories that are being stored in some way, but even more than that, we know that emotionally... Things are happening. So, for example, most psychologists will agree that how a baby is treated has an impact on how their personality and their psychological health is gonna develop, it doesn't mean they remember things as far as they say, oh, when I was four months old, my you know mother wouldn't breastfeed me enough or they didn't change me on time. But we know it has an emotional impact or imprint that it leaves on them. So even though he was one and a half years old when you guys left Iran, it doesn't mean that this move won't have an impact on him psychologically and emotionally, um, just cause he won't be able to describe it when he's older. Because you guys being stressed, the transition, moving, all these things can have an impact on him. So it's something just to keep in mind that, um, for example, when we say he's going to change his friends, I'm not saying he never should move schools because it's going to be painful, but we don't want to say, well, he's going to forget it, so it's okay also, like if he doesn't have these friends anymore. Now, he might have to move and deal with that, but I don't want that to be too much thought about if um, he's going to remember it, because then you can just say, well, why should we even be nice to him when he's two years old? He's not going to remember it anyway. But of course, we show love to them. They feel something. They feel a connection to us. They might not describe the actual memories, but they have a feeling about it. So the the feelings and the, even sometimes when we talk about the body somehow keeps track of what's going on in our lives, even if we might not have the episodic memory, the actual description to talk about what happened. So that's one thing um, that I think is, I want you to keep in mind making these transitions that even though he might not remember details or he might not, let's say, understand friendship in the ways that we think as adults, we understand friendship, it doesn't mean it won't impact him and even it could impact him even more because he's younger and more fragile and might experience those things. Um, But as far as changing the school now versus later, Um, I don't know. It's hard for me to say for sure he should change it now. I don't, and I also don't know. I know you gave me the numbers, how much of a financial burden it's putting on you as a family because that that can have an impact on him too. I was talking before about how money doesn't make us happy, but yes, financial stress can make life more difficult and painful and that can have an impact. So you have to weigh that into your decision that you're saying it's about 1200 a month or I don't know, something like. Twenty um, percent of your salary—that's pretty significant. And I don't know how that impacts life in general. Does your wife also work?
2: Oh no, she's uh, okay. she's at home. We okay. have another. Um, I have a, a one-year-old daughter. Okay, that was so, my next question.
1: Uh,
0: okay.
2: Uh, so yeah, um, I want to say it's uh, it's not very hard for us to. Um, this money, so okay. it's something like put air postpone everything like buying a house and everything for uh other time, but uh, we can keep with that. But we want to uh, know is it worth it? Is it something, uh, as, as you mentioned, as I know, uh, it, you have a lot of change, and I don't want to change it again if you if there's a, a good reason to keep him with, or decision would be to keep him, yeah, in I, I,
1: I don't know how how painful it's going to be for him. You know, you said he has these friends. It probably will be hard. Um, I'm not sure, but also you want him to transition into kindergarten. So usually if you can keep it the same and there's not going to be other negative impacts on what's happening, I'd say try to keep it the same because of what he's gone through. And even in general, we don't want to make too many changes for the child if they are avoidable change does happen but we don't want to make him have to go through uh, these kinds of experiences what was it like for him when the new baby came
2: uh, what was that?
1: when when you had your daughter what did your how was your how did your son deal with that,
2: um, <laughs> that was a tough question. I tried to uh, be with him more and try mm-hmm. to uh, uh, try to give him this, uh, you have your mm, dad and uh, your mother just uh, keep uh, busy with the uh, baby, but I, some sometimes we definitely can't see, his jealous but sure. um, generally because we, after my, my baby born, we mm, traveled to Iran, so for a couple of months he has lots of friends and family around him, but we when we came back to USA I can't see if we pay and pay more attention to the baby, he's going to mm, be jealous, but mm-hmm. Generally, I want to say it's okay. It's okay because we know the baby cannot, mm, how can I say that? that He's going to better understand it about what's going on. So we try to tell him you are more important and we don't want to um, lose you or we don't want to pay, do not pay attention to you. So generally, it's okay
1: okay and yeah, we we don't necessarily have to tell him he's more important than his sister but we want to make sure he feels very important and um and i know you said generally he's okay and even if he's jealous that's okay we understand that and and for me always it's so important that we let our child know that what they're feeling we understand it not that they shouldn't feel it or it's good when they don't feel it only that it, it makes sense that he gets jealous of his sister and so yes we want to minimize that as far as not exaggerating it or make him feel more jealous but um if he does express jealousy we want to make sure we show him it we understand it's okay that it's not that he shouldn't feel these feelings as i was mentioning in the previous segment too often we do that with everyone including ourselves but especially children we tell them they shouldn't be sad or they shouldn't be mad or they shouldn't care or um you know uh they'll forget about what they're going through and i'm not saying you necessarily use that strategy with him just but we mentioned that maybe he'll forget these and i always i know persian parents that hear them very often if the kid falls and cries one of the things they say in farsi is that you're going to get older and forget this it's one of the things they tell um, the kid when they're crying which i get it but that's more about themselves than the kid and like i was just saying things have an emotional impact so if Yes, the child might not remember that when he was one and a half, he bumped against the wall and started crying, but we care about how we make them feel emotionally. We never want to make them feel like their emotions don't matter. Uh, To me, it's just a way of actually making ourselves feel better because we feel so bad that our our child is sad, but it's being with them emotionally, whatever they're feeling. So, um, you know, necessarily changing or not changing, I don't see it so black and white from what you've described. I think you guys see him and know what's best for him but one thing i would say just i would say to all parents and just in some of the things i'm hearing from you is make sure you empathize with him whatever he is feeling so if he says he's sad about changing schools and you've already made the decision and you're going forward with it Make sure you show him you understand that he's sad or you, it makes sense that he's sad. And before you go forward to say he's going to make new friends, it's going to be better there, he's going to be happy, you show him that you care about his feelings right now, that I can understand you're sad you're going to miss your friends. You, you're so close to them and they love you and you love them and I understand you're going to miss them. And after you empathize with him, then you can get into, you know, when you go there, you'll also make friends and whatever else to, to get him to see that side as well. But make sure you always stay with his feelings, whatever he is feeling, even if it is sad or angry or jealous and and things like that.
2: Okay, so, yeah, you mentioned uh, I should see, like, black and white, and, yeah, that's right. But uh, I want to um, ask this question because when he's going to a school, we know he has, when he makes some friends, it's very good for them to be grouped, to support each other, so, mm-hmm. especially for elementary school, middle school, high school, because it, the, that's some um, environment there that, that we, we, they should protect each other. But and, uh, my question is about when they are five to seven, you mentioned they are not going to forget everything on the part of the life that uh, has an effect on the life. But mm-hmm. I want to say in this year, so, uh, if seven years old, they're still, uh, as important as a it is after seven, or it is, um, something, uh, I don't want to use the word less important. I want to say something, not um, care about it a lot. If they can make a friend very soon or.
1: Well, that's, I mean, that's my, I mean, I don't know. I get what you're saying. And I don't know if it's, more painful less painful it's different you know when they're younger they're more fragile when they're older they get more deeper connected and they remember it a different way um either way it's going to be painful so we're trying to make the best choice and then realize there'll probably be pain if you do it at five or if you do it at seven and then when it does happen and he has that pain that's when we say we understand it's hurting but i don't know if there's a clear-cut answer that at five it's going to hurt less than seven It's going to hurt. I still remember when I was in second grade and one of my friends, he moved away to Delaware. And I still remember I didn't even know what Delaware really was. And then that made me learn what it was. It was very far away and I never saw him again. But I remember being very sad when I was seven, eight years old. And but I mean, that's part of life. And then, of course, uh, you know, I was able to withstand it. So I'm saying it's going to be painful no matter when you have him make those moves If they're inevitable, like you're saying, you do have to make this move in two years, I guess. Okay, you're going to make it. Be ready that it's going to hurt. And he's gonna he can be okay. He can handle it. But then you're going to have to make sure you show him you support him. And if he's sad, you understand. That for me is so important because a lot of times because we might feel guilty. Oh, I'm hurting my kid. So we want to minimize the hurt. And by trying to do that, we almost make them have to minimize their feelings. So if you're less hurt, it's going to make daddy feel less bad. But we don't want to make him feel that way if he's very sad and crying about it it's okay that he's crying about it we understand it's not easy to move and to say bye to your friends and to move to a new city especially we have to remember it's not in his control at all you're making decision because it might make sense for the whole family but it's not up to him and that doesn't feel good so i don't have a a, a clear-cut answer for you that five will be easier or harder than seven it'll probably be hard either time um, but even with your one-year-old, when she's sad, I want you to make her feel like it's okay that she's sad and not that, well, it's one-year-old sadness is different than five-year-old or 10-year-old sadness. It's We're always there for them and show them that uh, empathy and that care. So uh, just be ready for that. It's going to hurt no matter when you do it.
2: Okay. So, yeah, I think uh, the, as, uh, as I understand the most important part is understand him and trying to Help him, support him, and talk, um, and do the thing, that changed uh, the best way you want, as as much as we, we
1: can. So yeah, right, yeah. yeah that's, it's that's yeah, great. it's gonna yeah, yeah. To me, it's like these things always hurt. You know, even the school year ends, they might get sad or going to school. It's just you know, the I think parents a lot of times, of course, we try to create the best life we can for our kids. That makes sense, but then also recognize that there's always going to be pains, and our life, our job is to make sure we stay with them and support them through that. And get them to see it's okay if you're sad about this i understand of course it's sad to say goodbye to your friends uh, a lot of parents respond with well you're going to make new friends and better friends and they just try to spin it into something positive rather than letting them sit with that feeling of negativity which i know people think is look at it as bad but it's good for them to have that feeling but yeah I, I hope uh wish you the best with those with the two kids i'm sure your hands are full
2: okay very good
1: thank you thank you have a great you day for sure bye-bye all bye. All right, going into another commercial break, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
0: Hello.
1: Yes, hi. Thanks for calling.
0: Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Sure. I have a question about. Uh, how can I trust to the person? Ten years ago, he be at the alcohol analysis, mm-hmm. and right now he is clean. He has a good family. He paid it. He tried to make a good job and money. Uh, he active at the AA group, maybe three days a week. Mm-hmm. He has a volunteer job at the church, and once a week to helping other people. My question is, how we can trust that people with that
1: background? Well, it's um, there's no black and white to it. Are you talking about? I know you're saying trust in general, but is this for a romantic relationship?
0: Yeah, as a partner. Yeah. Okay.
1: I mean, there's, um, you know, whoever we are with, there's going to be risks to each person trusting is always a risk when you're in a relationship we do take a risk and we have to understand that and yes we try to understand the person to make a choice we think is a good one a wise one but there's no guarantees and i can't tell you that someone who has been sober 10 years will continue to stay sober just like i can't tell you someone else who's never had a drug issue will be trustworthy because there isn't a guarantee about those things um, so you're saying he's been clean 10 years and he's very active and doing a lot of healthy things for himself. That's wonderful. Um, doesn't mean we can guarantee something. He can't guarantee that he won't, but again, no one can really give you that guarantee. So it seems like you're having a hard time, uh, trusting him or feeling like you're not sure if you should trust him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I can understand it's not, it's not easy to make that choice. Are you guys in a relationship now, or are you, he's pursuing you, or pursuing a relationship?
0: No, I try to understand I am thinking correctly, or you no, know, cross out on my mind, and never be close and think about this relationship. Uh-huh. Because uh, I know something wrong at the start of the relationship. I'm wondering if I'm not wrong, not a start.
1: Well, is this the thing that you're saying is wrong, or are there other things
0: you're concerned about? No, I'm worried about that. If I start that relationship, always I am afraid and get the trouble after. For this reason, I want to be sure I'm not wrong. I am correct.
1: Well, that's and that's the, another important part is that it is person to person. Because, do I think someone who has been an addict can be in a good relationship? Absolutely, I do. They can. Um, but if you feel like you're not going to be able to trust him, then that's not going to work. So you have to also look at it as a personal. It's not that I can tell you for sure you can trust him or for sure you cannot. You're going to have to see how you feel in regards to trust when it comes to him. And can you do that? Just like for some people, if they hear that someone they're about to date has cheated on their partner before a previous ex, girlfriend or husband or wife or whatever, they might feel like I'm not going to feel comfortable with this person. I won't be able to trust them. Other people, they say, okay, they made a mistake in that relationship, but I feel like I can trust that person who's cheated on someone else or even within the same relationship. Some people experience infidelity and they say automatically that has to be cause for breakup or divorce. Other people can... Try to work on the relationship and overcome that and and stay married or stay in the relationship. And you can't tell someone you have to trust them or you shouldn't trust them or that you can or can't. So a lot of this is also personal for you to ask yourself, will I feel comfortable with this person? Do I feel like I can trust him? And really only you can answer that. We can talk about it, but that's going to at the end come to you saying, can you trust him or not?
0: is not any way understand if for those people everything is the same for these people have that problem is not we can look at all people the same every people
2: is a different
1: not every person is the same and you know I know you're saying these people and addiction is a very serious thing so I understand we can say there's individuals who have that uh, or experience that but um You know, everyone has something, everyone has some issues and I'm not saying they're all equal or they're all the same. No, you're right. If someone has some anxiety, it's different from someone who has such severe OCD, they can't leave their house every day. And I'm not saying they're the same, but everyone does have some things and issues they're working on. And like I said, I know many people who have dealt with addiction and now have very healthy and happy relationships I also know many people who've dealt with addiction and then they have a relapse and things go bad in their life and and there's no guarantee. That's why I can't tell you the way I see it. It's not that if someone tells me the person has had addiction in their past, they definitely should not be trusted. No, it's something to consider and they can have a risk for relapse and, and that can be different based on the person and also what you see in him. Maybe you feel like he's trustworthy. Is it possible he has a relapse Later in life, of course, there is always that possibility. And so you have to really ask yourself how comfortable you feel. If you recognize that no matter what, it's going to be too big in the back of my brain, this fear of him having a relapse or, or something like that, then that's significant. Also, I, I would want you to look at how does he live his life now? I know you're saying he's very active in AA and he's taking care of himself. That's great. But you have to see how do you feel about the person he is and how he's living his life. Um, sometimes people who have addiction in one thing, they replace it with something else unhealthy, or sometimes people who have dealt with addiction find healthier ways to deal with things. So I would also look at those aspects of him and who he is and how he's living his life. And again, at the end, you're going to have to see, do I feel like I can trust him? And when you make that decision, I hope you won't beat yourself up either way down the line that I should have known, because it might not have been that clear whatever is going to happen. And even if he does relapse, doesn't mean it has to be the end of your relationship. Um, relapses are not all the same. Sometimes people, they relapse and have a bad day or week and they figure things out. Or sometimes it could change their life and they go on a very negative path for a while. It's not all the same. So it doesn't also mean if he ever has a drink again, that means your relationship is going to be ruined or his life is going to be ruined. It's 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 complicated. But I can understand you're in a tough spot trying to decide what to do with this person, meaning that on one hand you're feeling attracted to him or you really like him, um, but on the other hand you're afraid of trusting him.
0: Yeah, is you it's scared or afraid, don't let me go to the next step. i right. start at the first step. Now let me ask you, yeah,
1: away. have you dealt, anyone in your family or any of your past romantic relationships, has addiction been a part of it for them? Anyone you've had a close relationship with?
0: No, not before.
1: Okay, so no one in your family had addiction issues?
0: Never.
1: Okay, and no one you ever were in a romantic relationship? No. No? Okay. No. So yeah. now the other thing is for you to think about is, you're even saying this creates a fear in you which I can't understand. But sometimes we can choose someone that we won't let ourselves get close to because then we don't have to worry about getting that close to them. So you always keep this fear there and you're choosing someone who you're always afraid to get too close to because this way you can allow yourself not to get that close to him, which might feel safer. So sometimes people do that too. They'll pick someone that has some issue or something that makes it so they they won't fully accept them or fully let themselves go get into the relationship and let go um, and that way they can feel safe so here you can say well i like him but because of his addiction i can't fully trust him so i'm not going to fully give myself to him in this relationship and that way you also protect yourself in some way so that's another uh, element that i'd want you to keep in mind is there some way that you're protecting yourself it might sound paradoxical that you're choosing someone you feel like you might not be able to trust, but you're almost making things in a way where either you know how it's going to end or you won't fully give yourself to him. I
0: appreciate it. Thank yeah. you so
1: much. Sure. Thank you for your call. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if she still was talking there. I thought we had ended. I hope I did not uh, cut her off when she had more to say. Um, but you know, this issue of trust is, of course, a very complicated one. There's, We'd like for there to be a test we can give or a way of knowing we can for sure trust someone Um, or people want to know is this person trustworthy or not or even people will say how can you make your marriage infidelity proof so that there's never going to be an affair and you for sure know that this won't happen and it would be nice if that would be the case but it's not it's not that way that we can be for sure about anything Um, unfortunately, infidelity is fairly common. And most of the time, if you ask those people when they first got married, they wouldn't say, I think I will cheat or I think my partner will cheat. It usually doesn't start that way. Unfortunately, it might end that way. Um, and trust is something that it's not all or nothing. We build it. So when you first meet someone, the way I like to think of it is as if you're lending money. So if you don't know someone very well, you wouldn't just give them $5,000, Or ten thousand dollars and loan them money but if they said they needed five dollars maybe you would feel comfortable to do that you give them an initial trust so usually i think it's good if we can have an initial basic level of trust for most people that you trust them inherently at some level but a basic level not some all or nothing complete way. So you give them $5. If they give you those $5 back in a timely way, then you might feel more comfortable giving them 10. And then if they show you with that, that you can trust them with that, then 20 and more and more. And then you might feel comfortable at some point sharing all your money with them to some degree, which really is what we do when we get married. We share everything, including the finances, but we build the trust in this way as well. You first share some things with them and let them there for you or you open up or you spend time with them and you see how they respond. And we're building trust constantly. We see how reliable someone is. We see how uh, trustworthy they seem. This is why I also tell people when you first start dating, even though I know a lot of people like to play games and they say, I'll call you tomorrow or I'll text you back or I'll do this and then they don't to play a game. But you are also creating your level of trustworthiness to that partner. When you say you're going to call and you don't, that can affect how much they see your word as being your bond, that if you say something, you're actually going to do it. So the way we follow through can affect how people see us. But we build the trust slowly. And of course, to have a romantic relationship, you have to have trust. You have to be willing to risk. And trust always involves some level of risk because there is no guarantee. Trusting means I have in a way faith or belief in you that you won't hurt me. Not that I know for certain 100%. We might think of it in that way. We want it to be 100%, but really that does not exist that there is that way. You might feel that trust, but you can't be certain that nothing can ever happen, but you have enough trust in them that they won't violate that or hurt you. Uh, Sometimes I like the um, statement I've heard before of when you're in love with someone, it's giving them the power to hurt you, but trusting that they won't. And that's why there's always that risk. You can be hurt by that person. And that's what can make intimacy and closeness so scary is that, yes, if you uh, don't want to get hurt, it's better never to be in a relationship. That makes sense if you want to just protect yourself in that way. But of course, then you also don't get to enjoy the closeness and connection and everything you get from being in a relationship. So if we come from a place of just not wanting to get hurt, if that's the only thing that matters, then we also don't get to give ourselves what we really want, what makes us feel very good, because it always involves some risk to do that. But of course, we wanna be careful. We don't just, on the other hand, say, well, now I'll trust anyone no matter what, no matter what they show me. We try to be wise and prudent in how we trust and how much we trust and who we trust, but we also understand that there won't be any guarantees. So in her case, I can understand there is a concern about someone who's dealt with addiction. It can be unpredictable, but also we all can be unpredictable. And so it has to be looking at him and what he's shown her, but then also she has to make that determination. It's not that every single person should be okay being with someone who's dealt with addiction or every single person should be okay with being someone who's cheated on a previous partner. People do change and grow, but it's only if we can feel safe with them that we can make that relationship. We have to be the ones that can trust that person. No one else can tell you that you should or shouldn't trust someone. It's something you're going to feel. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 310 We'll be right back. back so in the last segment um wanted to make in a way a ending to how i started the show talking about the book neurologic and as i mentioned it talked a lot about different mental illnesses or issues that people can have and how when we understand the brain and what's going on in those individuals we can make sense of why they might experience the world the way they do why might someone who hears a voice that they can't recognize as their own, assume someone is in their head or someone has implanted a chip or they're being communicated to by some um, God or some type of entity that is is not them. It makes sense when we, we kind of understand it better. And so related to that, it's another reminder of one, as I was saying, having more compassion for individuals who we think of as being crazy for example if they have schizophrenia and seeing that something's going on in their brain that's not in their control and even actually makes sense there is some rationale behind what appears to be irrational behavior Uh, and also just recognizing that we all have issues we all have mental issues and i don't want to say i know uh, sometimes it feels nicer to say everything is equal so depression is equal to schizophrenia or everyone's depression is the same and of course that's not the case as I was mentioning to the previous caller that it's not to say that because we all have issues we should accept someone no matter what issues they have as being trustworthy or a good partner we do have to look at them and yes there is differences but there is a humility that comes with recognizing that everyone does have issues Um, talking to dean haycock on monday night's show we were talking about what i think will soon i hope sometime soon become a very accepted practice of having people who for example want to run for president to have to go through a psychological screening to to see if they really are fit to serve that office as it is a very stressful job it involves a lot of emotional situations and Emotional intelligence is important and how stable they are is going to be important amongst other things to just determine, are they in fact fit to hold that office? But we also discussed how one thing that might stand in the way is that if we gave people a psychological test and then released their results inevitably they would have something that let's say they spiked on okay they have more prone to be depressed or anxiety or they have some kind of thinking or whatever it is and because there's so much stigma that we have towards mental illness and mental health that these people would be judged negatively so if it comes out oh Candidate X has high levels of anxiety or higher than average levels of anxiety. People are think, oh, they're crazy. They're going to be so worried. They're going to be so this. They're going to be so that. Or this person has high levels of depression or has had major depressive disorder in their past. Oh, they're going to be this really bad depressed president who won't do a good job. And as actually I mentioned with Dean on Monday night's show, uh, President Abraham Lincoln suffered from very severe depression, and he's considered one of the greatest presidents in American history. And in first-rate madness, uh, Nasir Ghayemi I hope I'm saying his name right. He talked about how um, it wasn't that leaders like him and others he talks about in that book were good leaders despite their mental illness. It actually might be because of their mental illness. That was the argument he was making. That, for example, Abraham Lincoln, because of his depression, and this relates to something I talked about earlier today, but because of that depression, he was in touch with his own sadness sadness. And that actually allowed him to be more empathic and able to see both sides. So in this case, the North and the South, in some ways, it might have helped him bring them together because he could see both sides better because people who have experienced depression are often better at empathy and understanding others. So that could relate to the mirror neurons. Maybe his mirror neurons were working very well. He was able to um, understand other people better. But so we recognize that people would probably overreact to hearing that people have some mental issues, just like if someone gets a physical, no one has perfect health. They're going to look at your blood and say, Oh, you have low vitamin. This, you have a little bit of that. You have this kind of pain or that kind of pain or whatever it is. People always have some physical issue. No one has perfect physical health and no one has perfect mental health. It doesn't exist. And we have to understand that. And another, uh, Element related to this that I've talked about on the show is that sometimes what on one hand might look like as a mental illness or weakness is really part of uh, or one half of a coin, and the other coin is actually something quite positive. So, someone with ADHD overall, we might think of, oh, it's a bad thing, it's an illness, we have to get rid of it. But we also see as people who have ADHD might be more likely to be creative. And that creativity is something good. So it's not just a bad thing that they have ADHD. We have to erase it and get rid of it and and make them feel bad about it. It could be part of um, something that's also good. Or you might start to date someone. And this happens very often in relationships, especially when we talk about opposites attracting. So let's say someone is very conservative and likes things very stable and always does things by the book and plans things out and then they meet someone who's very spontaneous and just does thing some does things on the whim and is very exciting in that way they might be drawn to that person Now at first they get drawn to this person because it's so exciting. And also because it's something within themselves that they have a hard time expressing. So interestingly, it's almost like they experience vicariously this aspect of their own personality that they've put away. But usually what also will happen is they start to get annoyed by it. Because as much much as it's exciting for them to be fun and spontaneous, the person also likes stability, and over time will start to feel like you're so all over the place. You're not stable. You're not able to just stick to a plan. So we see that something that they found attractive, they start to actually really dislike. And you see this very often in relationships. Someone who might be complaining later in a relationship that, gosh, my husband is so controlling or my wife is so controlling. If you look back at the beginning of the relationship, they maybe actually liked that there was a feeling of stability and security they got, that this person was taking care of everything or doing everything. You know, I kind of like that she came into my life and she changed this and changed that. I felt kind of out of control. And so her actually controlling, I liked. But then now, a year into the relationship, two years into the relationship, they hate that part of that person, or they say they hate it because it feels very controlling. But anyway, coming back to this issue of we all have stuff... It's realizing we all have issues. And so when people say, I don't have mental issues, or I don't have any emotional issues, or I'm perfectly rational, those are the people that I find actually the least trustworthy, not actually more trustworthy, because I know they all have issues, because we all do. All this is telling me is that they're completely out of touch with whatever their issues are, which usually means it can affect them more. Because at least if we have an awareness that, you know what, this is my insecurity, so sometimes I think this way or feel this way, we have a better chance of counteracting that than if we're completely oblivious and think that whatever I think or feel is somehow the truth because I'm this perfectly rational being that doesn't have any mental issues. So if I think you're mean, it's because you're mean, not because maybe I'm feeling sensitive today or you triggered some, something in my past. So I always feel that if someone tells me they have no issues, that's the scariest thing. If you're dating someone they say no i'm perfectly emotionally healthy i have no issues that just means they're either lying or they're out of touch with themselves or something's going on and that's going to be a big problem now i don't mean that on your first test you should exchange um, reports from your psychologist about how healthy or unhealthy you are psychologically but i mean as you get to know someone it's much healthier to be with someone and even just yourself that recognizes their own flaws and their own faults who sees their own Weaknesses, or what they struggle with. This is something that I'm sensitive about. These are things that I do, or I am prone to get angry sometimes. And I'm also important things. You're hoping they're working on them, or you're actually they're actually doing work on whatever those issues are. But that they recognize them is much better. And that I also hope that that means when we recognize that we all have issues, we can be more accepting of other people's issues as well. We don't have to judge each other because we recognize we have some things going on also. Yeah, I have some scars, you have some scars. I have some weaknesses, you have weaknesses. They're not the same and I'm not gonna equate them saying that everyone's pain and everyone's mental anguish and mental issues are equal, but we all have stuff. We all have things that we're going through. And unfortunately, I think one of the biggest tragedies of the stigma of mental illness is that everyone is pretending to be okay when really a lot of times they're not. And we can actually be there for each other more and be closer to each other if we were allowing for everyone to express what they were feeling. But we think we have to hide it. We think we have to be okay. This is very true in almost every culture. But being Iranian myself, we see it so strongly in our culture that you're supposed to always be okay. You're supposed to not have any problems. You're not supposed to be sad, especially when you're in front of other people. You have to make sure they think you're completely okay and have no issues because that's going to make you more marriageable or marriable and more um, make the family look better and all these things, all of which is just a lie. We're hiding things. And so when we hide things, it's not that the pain goes away. It's just that we suffer in silence. And not only do we suffer in silence, the problems usually become worse one, because we don't deal with them, but also two, if we have this notion that we're supposed to always be okay, when we're not okay, then we feel really bad about that. We feel that we're supposed to be ashamed of ourselves for being sad, for being down, for feeling a little bit depressed rather than being more tolerant and acceptant, accepting of ourselves and of other people. And to me, this is one of those huge tragedies of the stigma of mental illness is that we suffer so much more because of it. Sometimes I even think an argument can be made that the stigma of mental illness can cause as much pain as the mental illnesses themselves. And making an analogy to physical uh, pain is if you broke your arm, but for some reason it was something you had to be ashamed of to break your arm. And now imagine trying to live your life with a broken arm, trying to hide this from everyone. People might give you a hug and it hurts so much, but you feel like you can't say anything because you're embarrassed to say you broke your arm. You don't get treatment, so it keeps getting worse. You judge yourself for being weak because you have this broken arm. This bone is broken in your body and you feel like you're weak about it. And every day it's hurting you and affecting you and you don't get the help that you deserve that you should get where you realize that actually, no, this is part of being human, that bones can break and that you go get help and it's okay. And your loved ones will care and they'll give you love and support. Unfortunately, what we see in cultures like the Iranian culture, for physical pain, you'll get a lot of support and outpourings of love. But for mental pain, you don't. If you are sick, everyone is worried and brings you soup and food and everything to make sure you're okay and show you love. And they're so worried about you and they're sad that you're not okay. Okay. But if you say you know what i think i'm depressed you're going to get in some ways um, pushed away people will be upset with you they'll say you're being difficult you're being annoying and they'll make you feel even worse so we see there's a huge discrepancy with how we deal with physical or medical pain and illnesses and how we deal with mental and emotional pain and illnesses And one of the goals of shows like mine and many other people in the mental health field is to try to bring more parity or equality between the way we see these things. Or even in my mind, realizing how there's much less of a distinction than we think we are. Because when you are physically ill and what we consider just physical, there's mental aspects of it. And when there's mental illness, it affects you physically and the line can get very blurry. And so hopefully we can just see that pain is pain and that all pain deserves to be attended to and deserves to helped and we deserve to care about them and we don't have to feel ashamed about them and we can get treatment when we need it and also love when we need it from others as well so one of my main goals in this show is to get people to see that mental illness is something we're all dealing with that what we consider negative feelings are not something bad, but a part of being human and sometimes even a part of living a meaningful life. I don't think you can live a meaningful life if it doesn't have any negative feelings in it. It has to be there. It's part of what actually we experience when things have meaning. If you love someone very much, when they die, it hurts. If you want to be close to someone, it means that if you lose them, it's going to be painful. That's part of the process as part of what comes with it and so recognizing that those things that we sometimes think of as bad or negative are not so bad or negative they're actually part of being human it's part of life sadness is part of being human anxiety is part of being human we all have them doesn't mean we don't want to help each other or help ourselves in different ways but i think it's so tragic to feel bad about being a human being which means you're flawed just like everyone else and if we can accept our own flaws and accept those of others it can allow us to be much closer first to ourselves and to our loved ones and create even more deep and meaningful relationships so whatever you're going through i hope you can accept that and also recognize that whatever loved ones around you are going through you can love them with that as well all right we've reached the end of today's show thank you to Ghazale here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr farid Alok. we have a wonderful day